Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based sciences. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Hello, Sherry. Good morning. I'm loving your background, I have to tell you, with the um, lights on the tree, like, sparkling all over our anecdotal anatomy sign. So hello to you and hello to everyone who's listening. Hello, hello, and welcome back. If you got through asana, now you get to come to pranayama. And I just want to say as, you know, we don't really banter a whole lot because we just like to get right down to business, but this is also sort of getting down to business. Just want to say last week's episode was pretty tough. I mean, we both agreed that it was a hard one, which is I think ironic since asana is sort of the reason we started this whole podcast. You know, we came together through asana practice and class and anatomy and, you know, kind of the physical postures. And it's really the thing that lit me up to, to even have these conversations. So the fact that talking about asana became such, it was, it was challenging. And I find that curious. I found it curious as well, because in previous episodes, we've talked, and in that one, about how asana was our step in. It was kind of the foundation and the roots. So when we began to speak about it, and I found myself like being confused on what the inroad to the conversation was, even though asana was the step into yoga, I was surprised at, as well at, at its difficulty of maybe staying on point and really knowing out of all of the different ways to step into a conversation about the asana practice, maybe that's what it was. There were just so many different ways to talk about it that I felt challenged. And, you know, sometimes when you embody something, and I'll talk for myself, when I embody something, it becomes a part of myself. And even as a writer and someone who's done poetry and, and that kind of thing, the words sometimes get lost in the embodiment part because it's become embodied. And so I lose that kind of the narrative around it. it. It becomes less about thinking about it and describing it. And it becomes more about feeling and expressing it through my body. And so maybe that was also a little tiny piece of it. But then as we sort of are progressing into the pranayama, the fourth limb of yoga, I found myself really feeling resistance to doing this episode. And it's breath. It's something that we do. We're breathing all the time. The only difference is we're talking about conscious breathing, not just breathing or even even just deep breathing. As Iyengar says, he sort of describes pranayama as conscious breathing, not deep breathing. But it's something we do naturally. It's something that we can also kind of, you know, manipulate a little bit or direct or control or whatever the word is. But I feel a little resistance to this conversation, too. So if it comes out in any way, then then that's cool. That's what these conversations are about. It's not about avoiding the resistance or, you know, trying to be something we're not. We are here. We're flawed. We're vulnerable. Um, and sometimes we'll misspeak and sometimes things will, you know, pour out in a conversation, a casual conversation that may not pour out in a training, you know, that has been, you know, deliberately designed to, you know, check the boxes. So I heard a couple of things while you were talking. One, your reference to We've embodied asana to, to such an extent that really distilling down to talk about it was a challenge. And it reminded me of way back, way back in the beginning <laughs> when we talked about coming out of our head and into our bodies, into the feeling and sensing part of who we are, and not so much 
in our head. And I think because asana is a physical expression of the body, that makes total sense that we would embody it more than speak about it. So mm-hmm. there we go. We're at, we came out of our heads there. So I think that, that I'm going to take that as a positive. Absolutely. Um, yep. That we were able to embody it so much that coming back into the conversation was the thing that we found challenging. And because of this challenge of moving forward, I think I might want to start this episode with a very, very, very simple, relaxing breath, which might help us to let go of some of that and make this nice, easy transition. Cool. So. If everyone who is listening, if you have the opportunity to practice along with us, please do. If not, rewind at some other time. But this is a breath practice that you can do anywhere at any time without needing any special setup. So either way, practice if you can. But if you have the opportunity to completely slow down, just put down any pens or papers or anything that you're doing. Find a comfortable seat, whatever that might be. Whether you're sitting in a chair or on the ground, if you have that as an availability right now. And if you can't sit, if you're listening while you're walking or strolling, begin to notice a grounded sensation. And that can just be an awareness of each step as it touches the earth. And if you're sitting, Allow the feet to be flat on the earth. The sits bones connected equally left to right and front to back. Maybe that takes a slight movement or adjustment in that seat, a rocking forward and back till you find that center point. Maybe rocking side to side. Noticing where that feels center aligned. And then just begin to have an awareness that you are breathing. Maybe notice where you feel it on the inhale. And where you feel the breath on the exhale. No judgments, no need to change. Just this first step. I am breathing and I notice it. Then relaxing all the muscles of the face, allowing the jaw to be soft, the tongue to be soft, and the lips closed, but maybe the teeth are just slightly apart to resist any temptation to bring in any of those patterns of stress, which might be clenching or grinding. So allow the teeth and the mouth to be soft. The eyes don't need to be closed, but they can if you feel like it. We'll take a nice, soft breath through the nose. So the inhale, the breath enters the body. So feel yourself breathing in softly, not deeply, just a soft inhale of breath. And releasing the air from the nose, but let it be soft, slow, and lingering on its way out. The breath flows in softly. Then there's a slow, lingering exhale. The breath flows in. And the breath flows out. One more time. Soft breath in. Slow, easeful, lingering breath out. All we did here was set a tone. The nostril breathing, it is often referred to as the breath of the rest of relax, parasympathetic nervous system. So we began with just a focus on noticing that our nose is breathing. 
And also the exhale is associated with the parasympathetic nervous system. So by slowing it down and letting it linger and letting it flow out with ease, we adopt the message to our internal systems. I am safe. I am relaxed. And I am ready to talk about pranayama. That was such a beautiful practice and so important for those moments where we're feeling agitated. And there's also another experience that can come in. And I had this the other day. I went into New York City to take a friend's daughter out for dinner and to see a show. And I had everything kind of planned out. And I'm not really a good planner. Logistics are not my thing. I can give you love all day long, but ask me to make a plan for something. And it's a little more challenging. But this plan came into, into view and I got the ticket starts at eight. Now, I took the train in and had someone dropping me off. My husband dropped me off and picked me up from the train station. And the, the second train I was going to try to get, or the first train I was going to try to get out, would have gotten me in after midnight, 1220-ish. Second one that if I missed it, it would get me in closer to 1 a.m. And that's just not fair. Like, I didn't want to have my husband have to get up. He's not really a late night guy. So as the show, we went to see Into the Woods, which I love. And I missed seeing it in the 80s when Bernadette Peters was in it. I felt a little regret about that. So I thought, oh, I'll take her to see this and it'll be great. And it was a great show, lots of talent on the stage, but it's a fucking long show. So I'm looking at my watch. The, the, it started at 8. The intermission didn't start till 9.30, didn't end till 9.45. So I'm thinking, when is this going to end? Like, maybe it ends at 10.30. Second acts are usually shorter than first acts. And I'm watching my, I, and I don't like when people turn their phones on in movie theaters or, or, you know, acting theaters, theater theaters, but I'm in my, have my phone in my hat so it won't disturb anyone. And I'm looking at the time, it's 1038. If I leave now and I walk and I book it to Penn Station, I'll be able to get that, you know, by the time I left, I missed that first train by about five minutes. But I said to my friend's daughter, who was so lovely, you know, sorry, I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to run. But during that time when I was feeling really stressed out, I was doing that breathing. I not the breath, the breath that you just offered, but sort of a square breath, breathing in, you know, a count, holding the count, breathing out the count, holding the count, just doing sort of a, a slow malingering, not malingering, that's a different word, a slow <laughs> lingering breath. And I felt two different things at once. I felt the impulse to relax, but then my mind got in there and interrupted the breath and said, you've got to get that fucking train. And so I wasn't fully in the breath and I wasn't fully in the moment. There was, I, and I felt the panic of like having to get to where I was going. So I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm not, it's not really the time and space to do this. It wasn't really helping me because my mind was so strong. And this brings in a correlation between meditation and breath work. You know, there are breathing techniques that are also meditations like Tonglen. You know, so we breathe in the grieving and the suffering and the pain and the trauma and the frustrations of the world or the individuals around us. And we breathe out the tonic for healing. We breathe out the goodness, just sort of counterintuitive because we think, breathe in the goodness, fill your vessel with all the good stuff, like I was trying to do in the theater and exhale the you know frustration or the you know time management or whatever it is. But when you breathe in someone else's suffering, they, they talk about the breath and like even the heart pumping the blood is sort of like a filter. You know, it filters out some of that, the crap. And then when we breathe out the goodness, we're creating that tone that you just helped us create for ourselves in the room, in a sense, like I'm sort of drawing in the comparisons, but the, the breath is so powerful and the mind is so powerful. And so how do we kind of balance the breath and the meditation, all these eight limbs? Like you said, we've, we, it's really difficult to separate anything out from the other, but we try in order to at least, you know, give a context and a space for the practices to be what they are. And then we can kind of look at the relationships, their relational aspects to the other limbs and the way that not just the other limbs, but the way that we take it off the cushion, off the mat and into the world. So. For example, that was one particular thing. But when I have a hard time sleeping, I will pay attention to my breath and I'll put my hand, one hand on my heart and one hand on my belly and I'll just start breathing consciously. And it's a deep breath also, but it's conscious. And I'll breathe in and then I'll breathe out and I'll feel the relationship of my hands on my skin, the animation that the breath gives the body. You know, it's that it's no longer still, there's a sense of movement, 
but all of that is almost like a rocking motion that lulls me to sleep. Even if I have anxiety or I'm thinking about something that has to get done the next day, I'm not trying to get the train. Like for some reason, there was an urgency about getting the train that brought my mind in that interrupted the breathing. But when absent that, <laughs> maybe I have to work on that, find that, that, that ability to, to harness and say, it's okay, there's always another train. But to say that don't, don't beat yourself up if you're not getting the immediate result that is presented as a benefit. Takes practice. It does take practice. And there are just so many choices. And that, I think, is what we really, what I really love. You know, when we started talking about this episode, we're like, well, we're not scholars on pranayama, which I'm going to say that right now again on the podcast. But when I started looking back on my notes, I've been studying breath for a long time with many, many different teachers and through many different lenses. Some of my teachers, and we'll put them in the show notes, are Ed Harold, who talks about, he does introduce yogic breath, but his background is breath as medicine and breathing in conjunction with workouts, with dynamic movement and then coordinating breath sequences for cardiovascular training, strength training, warm-ups, cool-downs. But his background is movement, but not necessarily yoga. The other, and this is, I'm going to stop with this one and talk a little bit about it, is when I studied with Leslie Kamenoff. And the thing that I really liked, and there's so many things to like about Le Leslie Kamenoff's teaching, so I'm going to limit it to just one of the lessons that she shared that has served me for years with breathing. And it's how he made the act of breathing so simple to understand. Mm. And he spoke about it in terms of, so this is science made easy the way I remember Leslie Kamenoff teaching it. So to set the stage, he talked about breathing in terms of water balloons and an accordion. And so the stomach, the whole abdominal cavity, we can look at that cavity as a water balloon. So you know what a water balloon is like. It's fun and it's squishy and it moves. And it moves depending on where you add pressure to the balloon. And he described the lungs as like an accordion or a bellows. And they, as they open, they bring in air. And as they squeeze, they expel it and make sound. So I thought that was really interesting. But the reason that he shared kind of that visual. So think about a water balloon with an accordion sitting on top of it. And as we breathe, we bring volume of air into our body, into our lungs. So think about opening the accordion and filling the bellows with air. The volume changes, the lungs expand in every direction, to the front, to the back, to the sides, up, down. When we take that deep inhalation, there's a filling of air, but there's also a change in volume of what is inside the body. As the lungs fill, that accordion fills, it creates pressure on the water balloon, which is the abdominal cavity. And as the diaphragm drops down onto that abdominal cavity, it changes the shape of the water balloon. And like you said, you are feeling the movements with your hand and your abdomen. With that inhale, we would ideally, the belly would expand to create space for the lungs to expand as well. But the volume of the abdomen doesn't change. We didn't put any food in it or anything that makes it get bigger and grow. It's just simply a water balloon that was getting squeezed and created the space for the lungs to drop down, the diaphragm to drop down, and have space to accept the breath. When we exhale, the opposite happens. The water balloon then comes back to its original sheath. The diaphragm pops back up under the lungs and we squeeze the accordion and the breath comes out. And it was just such an amazing visual for me to be able to see that coordination of the expansion 
and contraction of breath and what I was feeling with those hands placed on the ribs and hands placed below the diaphragm. So simple, easy, and kind of musical. Especially with the accordion, (laughs) which is kind of like, and it's funny because the harmonium, like the accordion, their bellows. I guess mm-hmm. that's part of the point <laughs> is that they have the kind of that, that bellowy thing. And there's actually a pranayama in yoga called a bellows breath, mm-hmm. which kind of precedes the Kabbalah Bhati, that breath of fire, which with my high blood pressure, I shouldn't be doing anymore. And I don't. But what's interesting to me is in we have these sensations, these feelings when we put our hands on our body and we can feel the effects of the breath as it animates the body. But also the experience in the body is it warms the body. So every morning I have a sadhana where I do about 20 minutes of asana. And then I, I've said this before, some chanting. And then I do five minutes of pranayama. And then I go into 20 minutes of meditation, mindfulness meditation. And the pranayama is only changed. Well, I did a little Kabbalah Bhati before I remembered that I had high blood pressure. <laughs> but basically I went from just breathing in the same number as I'm breathing out, sometimes exhaling a little bit longer than my inhale to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and restore. But I mostly I do Nadi Shodhana, which is an alternate nostril breathing, which we may get to later if we do techniques and if we, you know, go below the level of the surface of this conversation and offer, you know, more practices and, and more options. But when I come out to do my asana in the morning, it's winter here in Pennsylvania and it's cold. It's winter you know, everywhere, but in the Southern hemisphere, but it's cold here. And so I get up and I think, and I'm also hot flashing. So I don't like to always have a sweatshirt on or a sweater. So I usually just approach this practice in tank top, whatever, and and the pants, whatever pants they are, pajama pants, yoga pants, doesn't matter. But I'm usually cold when I start. And I, in my head, my mind says, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. It's just like, okay, just start. So I start my conscious breathing in Tadasana. And we all know that Tadasana is my favorite pose. So I deliberately stand there and take several conscious breaths before I even move. And then I begin my half sun salutations with the breath. By the time I'm at my second half sun salutation, I am so warm that I forgot that I was cold three minutes ago, four minutes ago. And so that to me alone is the power of the breath to warm the body, to change the conditions of the experience of being in my body in such a short amount of time deliberately was really all the empirical data I need. And is it empirical or is it anecdotal? It's my experience. But, and I'm sure there's science behind it that, you know, eludes my anecdotal mind. Maybe it's the oxygenating of the blood. Maybe it's more of the pumping of the heart. I don't know. There's maybe something relational there, but it's the breath. And, and yes, there are so many different wisdom traditions that use breathing as tools for clarity of mind, balancing emotions, you know, feeling wholeness and love and gratitude and so many of the sort of offshoots of feeling relaxed, which opens us up to so much goodness. James Nestor, who I can't believe I didn't even reference his book in preparation for this episode because I read it at the beginning of the pandemic, I think. It's a yellow book. It's right over there, over my anecdotal anatomy. I can see it, and I'm resisting the urge to turn around and grab it. But he offers, he goes, he went around and found different cultures that used breathing techniques for different purposes. And, you know, like I've said, I joke a, a lot, you know, I know enough to kill us all. If I remember properly, there was one tribe or group culturally sort of specific group of people who only knows breathe and that when their babies are tiny, when they first come out, they tape their lips together so that they encourage this nostril breathing because nose breathing, apparently nostril breathing is extremely beneficial. Now, apparently this group of people also don't require orthodontia. Their teeth are, are good. They're straight. They're in alignment that they very rarely, if ever, get sick. Like there's so many different things that this, this culture, this tribe, these, this group of people benefit from what they think is just this nose breathing. And if that's the thing, oh my God. And I'm thinking, oh my, I just, I sometimes, you know, the snoring, close your mouth and just breathe through your nose. But the power of the breath, if we know how to harness it could really, and then you think it's just breathing. Why don't we all do this shit? Like it's just, it, 
Why not? Well, because there's also effort. And we've gone through that effort of exertion, that effort at ease. And for all of us, it's going to be a different ratio of what that effort is going to look like. You know, I've, I've had yoga therapy clients and we start with breath and they're like, I've been breathing all my life. You really want me to come and learn how to breathe? But I know that when I learned about different breathing techniques and using them and started to build a relationship with my breath for so many different reasons, it was a real benefit. So you just referenced closed mouth breathing, which is another area of study that I have based on my dental background mm. and closed mouth breathing. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because there's something that I feel is somewhat new called myofunctional therapy in dentistry. And I find it so interesting because the way that I see it is that it's a program that I've offered to dentists for a long time who <laughs> did not really see the benefit of it until somebody created it and gave it a really great name. And it's a combination. <laughs> Marketing. It's Marketing everywhere. and names <laughs> and knowing who they're talking to. But basically, it's a combination of breath practices, myofascial release, and closed mouth breathing. And, you know, all in my wheelhouse when I talked about it, but I don't know, maybe I don't have the right letters. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> closed mouth breathing has these benefits. First of all, as we practice closed mouth breathing, you mentioned, you know, cultures who start with infants. That's where this spoke to the orthodontic community was if they were talking with their pedodontist patients and their youngsters coming in for orthodontics and also worked early on with closed mouth breathing practices with them, the positioning of the tongue would help to round the upper arch to give more space for teeth to come in. People may know of palatal expanders if you've had children who have had braces. Well, they're looking at this as a natural palatal expander when we practice closed mouth breathing. I also read, and I read it a long time ago, so I'm not going to have a source for this. You can look it up. But that one of the missions or goals of teaching closed mouth breathing to young children and working on arch formation and shape is so that within a generation or so, maybe we wouldn't have things like sleep apnea, which are often from breathing with their mouth open and constricted palates. So they brought it into the dental field. So there we go. I'm a myofascial therapist with pranayama training and, and a dental background. And uh, so it looks like I kind of missed jumping on board with the myofunctional therapy foundation. However, there are just so many so many benefits. And some of them that are listed on the myofunctional therapy website is closed mouth breathing will balance blood pH. It makes easier breathing. It's a reduction of stress. It lowers hypertension, filters and moisturizes the air, decreases dehydration in your mouth, increases energy. It offers better sleep, increased stamina and endurance, better facial development, and a more attractive facial appearance, which I found an interesting well, as the last Teresa, one. Right? Obviously. Yes. I mean, look at us. We are closed mouth breathers and we're, look at, come on. Gorgeous. <laughs> come on. <laughs> but I found really interesting. You talked about the arch in the mouth and it just, and nothing for nothing. I mean, I remember hearing a teacher talk about the arches of the feet, the inner arch, um, the pelvic floor and the soft palate being all in the same line, that there was a connection, there was a relationship among those three arches. And so I, I, for whatever it's worth, I mean, it's just another little tiny puzzle piece in this idea of how everything kind of fits together and there's nothing separated. You know, what is the connection between these things and how do we maximize our optimal wellness by accessing their, their benefits and doing the things that yeah, whatever they mean. I mean, it's just that in our conversation, sometimes little bits of conversation and wisdom from different teachers will come in without a context. But I will have to say them out loud because I feel like the universe has dropped it in my head. I got to say it. Studying with John Barnes and I've studied, had breath lessons from a dentist who was also a yogi when I was doing an anatomy training in Arizona. 
and they both talked and kind of spoke to what you just said, the aligning of those soft parts of the body, those, that alignment. But in balancing the body from a fascial perspective and a dental perspective, they have two, they talked about the same thing, but in two kind of different ways. One was the triplets theory. And the triplets theory was balance the pelvic floor, balance the diaphragm, balance the jaw, and the body will stay in balance. So same thing, looking at all of those soft spots and saying these play together. And therefore, if so, when I'm working with a client who's maybe having difficulty keeping their hips in balance, the places that I go to are abdominal work and jaw work because we want those alignments to be in alignment. When I study with John Barnes, who is one of our myofascial teachers, he says, if you want to keep the body in balance, work on the three funny sounding P's which is piriformis, psoas, and the t yoga has so many things. Yoga asana has so many different ways that it's been reported. Remember years ago when there was a lot of press about does yoga hurt the body or does it heal the body? And yes, yes and yes, <laughs> they're, just, they're both so depending on how you're using it, when you're using, uh, what parts of asana you're using, you know, and do you have, and this goes back to why I like to hold my poses for a long time and find that ease, individual aspects of breath, but also its holistic and integrative uh, properties throughout the rest of the body. Yeah. Our friend, our mutual friend, Marion, turned me on to a Qigong teacher named Robert Peng, who I did several, I, st I have two days, or I think Wednesday is when my year is up and I still have a few classes I, I missed, but he offers something called she breathing, X-I, she breathing. And it's really fucking hard. You know, I did it fairly regularly. I, I did it because I was curious about how I would feel as a result of having done it. <laughs> and that was really my only why. I'm just curious. And I don't know that that was enough to keep me grounded in it. I would like to return maybe with a bigger why. But, and again, I don't really remember the whole story. And when I went to to Google it, I, I couldn't find the actual story, but there's a story about, I think, either he or the ancestors of this lineage somehow in a cave for survival did this she breathing. And I forget all the context of it, so I don't want to go into it, but it was the means of survival. And I think the circumstances when I heard them the first time were so dramatic that I thought, oh my God, this is insane, like just from the breath. So I would like to read just three very sort of short pieces from a website called Breath Mastery. And they're very basic. I mean, it's not like dive in deep and say, oh, we're getting into some esoteric shit here. But basic stuff, and we've already kind of touched on this idea that we already breathe. So Breath Mastery says, our breathing is the only system in the body that is both completely automatic and also under our control. We know this. Um, that is not an accident of nature, not a coincidence. That is an opportunity, an invitation to take part in our own nature, in our own evolution. And I love that part because the first part kind of feels a little just trite. It's like, yeah, we, we know that we naturally breathe and we can control our breath. That just doesn't feel like, oh, wow, I had a big aha moment. Like, wow, that's really? But the piece that really turned me on was that it's not an accident, that it's an invitation, that we get to be co-creators in the experience of living in this body with this breath because we know that it's going to keep us alive, but we also know that we can create different experiences with it. Then it goes on to say that every psychological state, every emotional state, every physiological state has a corresponding associated breathing pattern. So, and I'm going to stop there for a moment and go back to something I said in a previous episode where in an acute situation, I'm not looking at my breath. You know, it's something that I either do before or after because the acute part of the situation keeps me separated. Since I said that, my experience has changed. And when I find myself in an acute situation, I now look at my breath and I notice the patterns that are shifting. So that's one of the transformational experiences of having this podcast and having these conversations is that I have the opportunity to evolve. And this is what it's saying. It's saying that we have the invitation to do that, but that there's also these associated breath breathing patterns. Then he goes on to say, or they go on to say, the way we breathe when we are peaceful and calm is different than the way we breathe when we're angry and upset. 
Yes. So the breath practice that you offered in the beginning, as we started doing it, I thought to myself, oh, this belongs in Dharma at the Wheel Yoga for Road Rage, because it is a breath that we can do without closing our eyes, without doing anything special. We can just sit with our spot. I think with all of these breathing techniques, the one thing that we just need is a long spine. We want our spine to be in integrity so that the, the prana, the life force can flow through the channels with some ease. But that's another story. So the third and final thing I'll read is when we control our breathing, we control our awareness, our focus, and our energy, our life force. Breathing is a behavior. Breath control is self-control. Breath awareness is self-awareness. When the breath flows fully and freely, our natural creative and healing energies flow fully and freely, which makes perfect sense. And it also adds dimensions to why this is a limb in a full structure that is transformational, that is healing on every level, and that we get to use the breath as, as the tool, as the, as the conduit, as the messenger almost for so many of these practices. So much great information in those small re-little paragraphs. They were just like overwhelming with information in such a concise way. So thank you for sharing that. It made me think while you were speaking about the autonomic nervous system, because that's really where that first paragraph kind of centered mm -hmm. was, you know, being aware of the breath. And so the autonomic nervous system is part of the central nervous system and it is the part that kind of controls all of our systems in the body. It's like the operating system running in the background to make sure that our heart works and our digestion, our reproduction, all of these systems that we don't have to consciously think about to make them work. Our heart is going to pump, our food's going to pass through. <laughs> and that's just the way we hope that it will continue to work effortlessly and with ease. And the, this system is broken into two major branches, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, and both are equally as valuable. Sometimes the sympathetic nervous system of that is termed fight or flight, which makes it sound and freeze and freeze, which makes it sound like maybe it's a negative, but it isn't. If we're in the middle of a project, if we want to go for a run, if we have a lot to get done, if we're in a lot of our young energy, we want that sympathetic nervous system on and working, it is going to allow us to, to do, to get it done and to give us the energy to do just that. The parasympathetic nervous system is its opposite. It's balancing partner that when we're finished with all of those jobs, all of those to do's and it's time to be, then we want that transition to let out all of the happy hormones to have this whole full body experience of changing from epinephrine to, you know, things that are going to slow down the system. And we want that switch to be able to effortlessly go back and forth between the two. But in a very hectic society, some of you may live in them. I know I do often. It is possible to get stuck in fight or flight, to not really be able to make that transition easily between the two. And, you know, that comes across in many ways. You know, sometimes we talk about doing or being and people are like, oh, it's so hard to just be. I have to do something. That's one of those sentences that says I might not be able to access my parasympathetic nervous system. And as Sherry mentioned in her reading, it's the breath. It's the relationship with that gift that's been given. That breathing, yes, it's part of that autonomic nervous system. If we don't pay attention, our body's going to breathe us. But the awareness of breathing, the understanding that we do have the opportunity to control it and choose different breath practices based on the result we want to get, we're not going to do the same breath practice to go out and run a marathon that we're going to do at the end of the marathon to then slow down and shift over. So, you know, the breath and it being our gift, it's just, for me, feels like, you know, I don't want to say the word gift again, but it is so <laughs> valuable to know that in this practice and understanding and building the relationship with our breath, 
sometimes our emotions are going to be out of control and we're not going to jump right in and go, oh, that's the breath of being anger or, oh, I need to change that. We can experience all of them. However, when we notice that we're stuck and the transition seems very off in the distance, that's when we look at our different breath practices or our teachers who then can help us and offer a breath that will allow us to make that transition. And the slow exhale and closed mouth breathing are the two simplest parasympathetic, I'm going to call them angels or fairies, parasympathetic angels or fairies that we have. Because like you said, no props, don't need to close our eyes. We can do it anywhere. And it brings us into a place of beginning to slow down. I love the way that you presented the sympathetic and parasympathetic because every I've never heard anyone start with relevant with relevant scenarios. It always starts with, you know, we need our sympathetic if we're being chased by a tiger, you know, or that we're being pursued by some some danger. You know, that's usually the way that that has been presented when I've heard it. And then we like, but today's world. It's the ringing of the telephone. It's not even the red, like, does the telephone ring anymore? The vibrating of the telephone. And we live in such a, an urgency mindset that everything becomes the tiger. Everything becomes the danger. So that, or at least that's the way it kind of shows up in the body, you know, when it's not. So if we're feeling, and we wonder why we have so much anxiety and depression today, you know, everything has that kind of feeling of the danger in the body. So, you know, if we're just, if the, there's so many bells and dings and lights and, you know, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, it may be an opportunity to wake up in that moment. Um, yes, if you have that tool, if you have that awareness, but all of it, you said it before, it comes down to awareness. It's like, I feel like the awareness of the breath is like the awareness of our thinking and meditation. You know, that once we sort of have this idea that we're, you know, once we become aware that our mind has wandered, we come back to this breath. But what breath are we returning to? Are we returning to a shallow patterned breath of anxious, I've got to get out of this meditation or I'm bored and I just don't want to be here? Or is, are we returning to a breath of center and calm, which is something I hadn't really thought about in terms of the returning to the breath. What is the breath? that we're returning to. Hopefully it's, it's meditation in sync, that restorative one. Yeah. Yeah. Just coming back. And again, every teacher that I've studied with, I don't know about you. They start with the best breath practice or the, or the starting point is awareness. Just start simple and notice I am breathing. And what does that feel like? And from there, there's so many different ways to expand. As everybody knows, I love being outside and there's the other parts of breath that connect us to nature. We as humans breathe every, it's the first thing we do and the last thing we do on this earth is we take the in-breath on the way in and the out-breath on the way out and everything in between is just the experience. But it's also our connection. We exhale predominantly carbon dioxide. And trees and the greens around us exhale predominantly oxygen. So being outside is a really great connection to the symbiotic relationship with the natural world that surrounds us, but also a place of fresh air, fresh oxygen, whether that's from like me, I love having houseplants. I've got a ton of houseplants that help to oxy- oxygenate my indoor air. But being outside and sharing the breath, not only with the trees, but you have to really imagine that each time I exhale, that exhale doesn't disappear. I could be exhaling right now, and at some point in time, you'll be inhaling, and we have bits of the same particles and the same breath. But because I really do love being outside and I love how breath is such an important part of our connection to nature, I do want to mention that we, Anecdotal Anatomy, still is hosting some outdoor walks. This is such a great opportunity for being outside in winter. The time that I personally 
want to cuddle up under my blanket and open the door and go, brr, it's cold out there. (laughs) Do I really want to go out? And the answer is yes, because there's so much beauty out in winter that my resistance to being in the cold has always stopped me from enjoying. And last winter when I um, uh, spent a ton of time walking Siva, you know, three nice long walks a day in any weather, I built this, this infatuation with which, how winter looks outside and what the difference is in breathing in that cold air and the warm air. So just that's all that is to say is that Sherry and I have some wander in wonder winter walks. So check out our website, anecdotalanatomy.com. We would love if you are local for you to join us. Join our Keystone community of members who love just their times and opportunities to meet new friends. Yes, 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 yes. I'm going to dial back a little bit because I'm not sure we ever defined pranayama. And, oh, that's uh, a good way to end, isn't right? it? <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, what? but but I think there is, there's a wisdom in that or a happy accident. I don't believe in random, but it may feel random that Sometimes when we label something or we define it before we start, we limit our experience or understanding of the thing. You know, if I call the thing outside a tree, then it's always going to be a tree, never going to be me. I am that. I get to be that too. And so once we define something, I really do believe that we limit, you know, the experience of it. So having gone through this whole experience of pranayama and talking about some of the science, some of the anecdotes, some of the practices, it's basically breath work, you know, but breath work can become ubiquitous, <laughs> which I'm gonna, you know, it can become something like, oh, breath work, but you don't really know what you're talking about when you say that. Like I did breath work at the prancing peacock that Liz led. Oh my God. Absolutely needed to have the guide because every time I felt my hands like they were floating off the air and they were like these huge balloons based on this breath work. And I started to panic. Liz would come over almost instinctively and gently put her hands on my shoulders or on my head or somewhere to ground me or on my ankles. This was one of the few, if only breath work experiences that was really transcendent for me, that actually felt like my body was having a physical experience that lent itself to a trans... Uh, a transcendent experience that I was sort of out of my body too. But that's a whole different thing. But I don't know that I think of that when I think of pranayama, but it's all just, you know, sort of in the pantheon of breath work. So according to Tom Barron, I'm taking this from a website called Stress Coach. It's an app, I guess. <laughs> so this is Tom Barron. And he says, you know, that pranayama is a Sanskrit word that loosely translates to control of breath. Prana means breath or life force. And we did that in the kosha, the pranamaya kosha, where Teresa said at first she thought about it only as the breath, which makes sense because of pranayama. But then when you think prana is also life force, there's that energetic relationship. So that says prana means breath or life force and ayama means to control. So when you have the A there, that that brings sort of not a negative connotation, but the opposite of yama, which would maybe mean not to not control, but I'm making that up. I'm, I'm guessing that that's true just based on the limited understanding I have of Sanskrit. So he says, if you can think of it as a set of practices to control the prana, the life force within your body through breathing techniques. So I love that distinction. So it's helping to direct the life force in the body, the prana, through breathing techniques, pranayama. Pranayama breathing techniques are thought to have come into existence around the same time as yoga and meditation in India around 5000 BC. So they're recorded within ancient texts from around this time, such as the Yoga Sutras. And these texts mention pranayama as a foundational aspect of the yoga practice, which makes sense. It's limb four out of eight, right there in the middle. But same size, same same weight, same relevance and necessity, I would think, as a whole structure, as a whole system of, of transformation and practice. That was a reminder to me when you read that. Yes, the whole life force. And, you know, while you were reading, I was thinking, well, yes, yes. And not yes, I know that, but yes, oh, all of these little light bulbs and all these bits of ideas are starting to like shuffle into another thought pattern. And that was that we did talk about the transition from sympathetic to parasympathetic and back. 
And, you know, when we're talking about life force within the body and my expansion from breath to all of that energetic part of life force, well, as you were reading, all I kept thinking was, oh, of course, because the air mix, you know, when breath comes into our body, it mixes with the blood. This is the flow of fluids through the body. And so now we have, yeah, we change the breath. We change the piece of the heart, which is pumping this life force throughout their body. The blood is the delivery system of this oxygen to each and every cell. I started to have a whole different thought process. I would, but I'm not going to go too much further deep because I know we're coming on time. And now that that showed up for me, I could just start all over again and we could start this podcast once again. We were so resistant. Now we want to do pranayama part two. <laughs> you know, and when you were talking, beautiful, like you blew my mind about the, as it comes in and it mixes with the blood and all of a sudden I'm feeling a ancient ancestors particles, you know, flowing through my bloodstream and I'm feeling really powerful. But it also brought up the poetry of yoga. It brought up the poetry of this whole system because it is both literal and metaphorical. It brings in the science of all of that flow of all of the systems, the, of the you know, nervous system and all of the systems and all of the shit of the body and stuff. But it also is poetry. It is this, what is life force? What moves you in the world? And how does you know, the breath allow us to move more deeply into the things of, that we're resistant to so that we can by, not bypass, but move through that resistance with a certain discernment and a certain consciousness, a certain awareness? Because like you said, it starts with awareness. I don't remember if all the teachers I've studied with started there in a teaching, in a didactic sort of way, but it feels implied. It feels a certain, you know, without that, what else? Like, why are you here if not being aware that you want to learn what's being offered? The awareness is what brought us into the room that, oh, that's something I want to know more about. Yeah. So stick with us because we're going to keep on breathing and uh, we're hoping that you'll keep breathing with us. All right. As my sister and I would say at the end of every conversation, all right, I think we're done. <laughs> I think we did, uh, you know, for starting with resistance, I am happy where we ended. Until next time. <laughs> I'll see you then. Come walk with us. Come walk with us. It's going to be cold and fun. We're going to winter together and honor the season. And oh, you know what? It's also just before Christmas. So Merry Christmas. You know, Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa, happy whatever it is that you're celebrating, however you move into the spirit of generosity and love and giving, we, we honor you and celebrate you and wish you all that you wish for yourself and more. And abundance. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.